You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of 1 Kings. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. All right, let's open up to 1 Kings chapter 18. And uh, we're going to take a a break tonight from uh, memorizing the kings uh, because we're kind of on pause. And, uh, and, uh, you know, we've been, we've been going through the, the divisions of the kingdom. Jackie's doing something funky. Oh, pause me. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for unpausing me. I was going to, um, we, uh, we've been talking about the division of the kingdom of Israel divided into two, uh, into two kingdoms, the Southern kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? And so, just a a real quick, uh, the first king of Israel was Jeroboam. First king of Judah was Rehoboam. It's like the Lord helped us out by making them rhyme, you know? And so, today where we're at is about the, you know, I don't know, something like the sixth king of Israel, uh, the son of Omri. Omri was the most wicked king of Israel to date. And he had a son named Ahab who, lo and behold, beat him and was extra wicked and married a very wicked, wicked witch of the north with a capital W. And her name was Jezebel. Jezebel. That's how they say it in the south, right, Ken? <laughs> He's like, no, don't dishonor my people like that. <laughs> And, uh, and so we have this wicked king, Ahab, his wicked wife, Jezebel, who's led him into the worship of the god, Baal. And, um, and so Ahab has been leading the nation of Israel into this wicked, idolatrous practice uh, to the king, or to the god, false god, Baal, who was supposedly the god of rain and storms and fire and uh, and basically prosperity agriculturally because of the rain and all that. And last week we studied that in chapter 17, verse 1, um, the Lord had raised up Elijah. And Elijah is going to be the prophet who uh, basically starts the judgment on the wicked house of Omri and the wicked house of Ahab. And so um, Elijah, first verse 1, verse chapter 17, said uh, there's going to be a drought on the nation of Israel uh, for three and a half years. Basically, he said, until I say it, it can stop. But it ended up being three and a half years. And he called Ahab to uh, Mount Carmel and to bring all of the nation of Israel. And, you know, he basically, in chapter 18, verse 21, drew a line in the sand and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If Baal is God, then worship him. If Yahweh is God, then worship him. How long will you falter? How long will you stumble between two gods, between two lifestyles? And so he challenged the prophets of Baal, 450 prophets, false prophets of Baal, to a duel up there on Mount Carmel. And so let's just throw a slide up there on Mount Carmel, those of you that might not have been here. This is Mount Carmel in Israel. And it was there on Mount Carmel that he, there was a Wild West duel between uh, the prophets of Baal and, the, and Elijah. And he said, you know, let's, you guys build an altar and, and we'll ha- we got two bulls here. You guys can have the pick of the bull, chop it up, put it on the altar and call out to your God. And so they did that to Baal and all day long 
They tried to get fire to come down from heaven, and it wouldn't happen. They began cutting themselves. They began dancing. And Elijah began mocking them and saying, you know, what's your God going to the bathroom? You know, what's your God on a long trip? Why isn't he lighting your altar on fire? And finally he says, all right, this is enough. You know, and he gets his altar, and he rebuilds this altar that Israel had forgotten about. And he rebuilt this altar, and he dug a trench around the altar, and he poured you know, jugs and jugs and jugs of water all over the, all over the uh, sacrifice, the bowl, all down into the trenches. And uh, apparently he was getting ready to make some gravy, you know, on this steer here, you know. And so, you know, maybe not, but I just always think about food. And, uh, and you know, basically poured water on it so that it was absolutely clear that if this sacrifice lit on fire, it was a work of God and not any special trick of man or anything like that. It was something divine. And it says that fire came down from heaven and lapped up the water and consumed the stones on the altar and the dust and things that are not normally flammable. They were consumed and lapped up. And, um, and it was then that all Israel declared that Yahweh was God. And so the, the false prophets were like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And they start scurrying down the mountain and Elijah says, don't let one of them escape. And so he, they capture them, take them down into the valley to the brook and, and behead them there. And so uh, it, was, it was there where we left off in chapter 18, verse 40. And so that brings us to verse 41 tonight. I just got a little long-winded last night. And we had to stop, couldn't finish the chapter. And uh, so picking up there, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. You know, the, the false god Baal has been, his idol has been tipped over. And so immediately Elijah is like, man, the whole nation is repenting. And, and he's thinking in his heart, even Ahab is repenting. This is glorious. He says it's time for the, for the um, famine and the, and the lack of rain to end. And so Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees. And so uh, just real quick, Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went to the top of the mountain to pray. And just notice his posture here. What's his posture? He's knelt down. He's, He's got his... Uh, face between his knees. And just how we mentioned this when we talked about Solomon dedicating the temple, just how biblical it is to, to bow and to, to kneel and to lift your hands in worship. And, uh, and we just see Elijah, just, you know, his outward posture reflecting the posture of his heart. You, know, you remember Daniel uh, knelt three times a day. It was his custom to kneel and to pray three times a day. And so here just Elijah is just, man, in, in a posture of humility, of, of complete dependence upon the Lord, puts his face between his knees and said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And seven times he said, go again. So Dakota, go ahead and flip that slide up there of the the view of the sea for Mount Carmel. So it's really special. It's one of the most special places to me is Mount Carmel. As you're there, you can see the the sea. 
See what you can see from the, oh yeah, you know. Uh, you know, you can, you can look from the top of the mount and just picture what this servant was looking at. And so Elijah, just fervently praying, head between his knees, crying out for rain, tells his servant, look, see what you can see coming out of the sea. And the, and the servant says, there's nothing. And the story goes on that Elijah says, well, we're done here. It's clear to me that God doesn't answer prayer. So they gathered up their stuff and they walked down the mountain and that's the end of the story. First Kings is over. No, that's not at all what happened. Elijah is a picture to us of persistence, of a persistent, continual, fervent prayer life. It's that same persistence in Elijah that we see in chapter 17 as he goes to the widow of Zarephath and as he's developed this special relationship with the woman and her family and her her son. Well, her son died one day. And she said, what, is God judging me for my sin that he kills my son? And Elijah takes the boy into the, the, into the upper room. And in a very strange way, something we probably wouldn't allow in our children's ministry today, lays on the boy and, you know, starts bowing down three different times. And he cries out to the Lord, uh, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray that this child's soul will come back to him. Three times, not one time. Not two times, three times. There's persistence there. And I love that about Elijah, that it wasn't one time. Look out, is there a cloud coming out of the sea? Two times. Is there a cloud coming out of the sea? No. Oh, man, I'm really praying hard here. I'm really breaking a sweat, you know. I'm getting uncomfortable with, you know, bowing down like this. I'm almost done, you know. Three times. Is there anything? You know, and he's remembering in his mind that he's the one that prayed that the famine would start and that the Lord had told him it's, it's going to be through him that the famine stops. And so just out of faith and persistence, seven times he asks his servant to go and look into the, look out at the sea. Has anything happened? Are there any storm clouds a coming? And seven times he said, keep looking, keep looking. And we studied this last uh, couple Sundays ago. Just that the Lord desires us to be persistent, constant in our prayer lives. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be open. And the idea there in the Greek is that it's a continual knocking. It's not knock once, it's keep asking, keep knocking. And, you know, he spoke a couple parables there in Luke 18. We were just at it about, you know, a woman who desired justice. And so she goes to an unjust judge, a, a mean judge. And she asks for vengeance for her against her enemies. And the judge says, nah, I don't think so. And so she comes back the next day. Nah, I don't think so. Comes back the next And finally, she just keeps coming and keeps coming. And her continual petitions cause this wicked judge to grant her her petition. And a lot of people say, well, why is God likened to an unjust judge? It's not that God is likened to an unjust judge. It's that God is saying there is a comparison. It's that if the unjust judge will do it after having been nagged for so long, how much more will the just judge do it? 
And there's just a lesson there to be, to be constant in our prayers and to continue asking for those things. Jesus himself was, uh, had a, a practice of persistent prayer. And uh, you guys remember, just even in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he was there and that three different times he cried out to the Lord. He said, Lord, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me, the cup of, of your wrath that I'm about to drink, of, of your wrath for all the sins of the world, they're going to be poured out on me at the cross. If there's any other way possible, let it happen. No answer. If there's any other way, you know, three different times, three different trips, going and checking on the disciples, and they were asleep. And so he goes back and prays and comes back. They're still asleep. You know, three different times he cries out. He was persistent. Now, in that case, what was the answer? There is no other way. There's no other way that this cup, you know, you're the only way, Jesus, that the sins of the world could be forgiven. It's not through Buddha, it's not through Muhammad, it's not through Confucius, it's not through Joseph Smith, it's not through good works. Galatians chapter 2 tells us if there was any other way, then Jesus died in vain. And trust me, Jesus made darn sure there wasn't another way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked, couldn't these people just be a little better, be a little gooder, you know? No, they can't. We've tried that through the law. It just can't happen. And so the answer there was no. And sometimes that answer is no. Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is just keep praying. We'll see. And so why do we need to be persistent? Why can't God just answer us right away and we'll move on to the next subject? (laughs) You know, we'll move on to the next big prayer request. I mean, we got lots to pray about. Let's just, let's get these things answered, you know, as fast as we can. Is God deaf that he can't hear me? And what was that? I need my battery's running out of my hearing aid. You know, it's like, yep, sorry, God's getting kind of old up there. No, that's not the problem. God's not deaf. We're going to study later in James chapter 5 that he hears the prayers of the righteous. And all throughout the Psalms, I cried out to God and he heard me. Well, does God like me to come with tears stained face and just constantly, please, Lord, please, please, day after day? Does he just enjoy? Try to ask tomorrow. <laughs> I love it when you're just groveling in your petitions. Yeah, that's not the Lord's heart at all. But have you guys ever noticed that as you're continuing to pray for something, that you start out praying for a certain thing or a certain something to change or something to happen, and after a few weeks or a few months, your heart has changed about what you're praying about? And no longer are you praying, you know, my will be done or this would sure be great. But as you're spending time with the Lord seeking him and crying out to him, he's changed your heart. You know, so now you're praying for something else. He he changes your perspective. You know, James tells us that you, you pray and you do not get because you ask amiss that it could be spent on your pleasures. You know, and, and a lot of times that's just, there's just sin there. And, but sometimes it's, you started out, you wanted something for your own pleasures or for your own will. And by the end of, you know, your six weeks or 12 weeks or two years of praying, God's totally changed your heart. And it's been so neat for me to get to be a part of the church in Corvallis because I was there when we were 17 people meeting in a senior center. 
And now the church has about, you know, 1,300 people going to it. And we just, well, it's been about three years now or something. Uh, You know, we'd always wanted a, a building as the church was growing. We wanted a building. We wanted a church home. And we'd go behind the Safeway and pray for this three-acre lot behind the Safeway, you know. And, or we'd go behind this farm, and it's like, well, we'd have to drive through the people's house every day, you know, to get back here to, uh, to get to our, you know. And we're just, oh, but we want it so bad. And the Lord was just constantly saying, hey, don't make an Ishmael. Don't make things happen in your own strength. But just keep waiting on me and keep praying. And we just kept waiting. And I was on staff for, you know, uh, about five years, and we, we had gone to many different properties. And finally, there was a, a home up on the, the uh, more of the um, wealthy end of town, up on a hill. There was 56 acres, and, uh, and it, w- it belonged to three feuding siblings. And, and the Lord just moved on a realtor in our church that we should offer something and see what the Lord does. And we offered just this way, 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 way low amount. And immediately they accepted it. And, you know, so now there's 56 acres out there and we just, the Lord's provided a neat home. And in fact, I'm so excited just for the elders and, and, uh, and their wives are going to Corvallis this weekend with me to a leadership conference. And I'm just excited for them to come to kind of like my home over there, you know, my, my not with my home, but, you know, my past home. And just for them to get to meet the people there. So you can be praying for our elders and just as that we would get refreshed and encouraged and be given new vision over there in Corvallis. But, you know, we were praying so hard for that two acres behind Safeway or that old rundown school, you know, that whatever, please, God. And he says, just keep praying. I'm not going to give you it yet. Just keep praying. Just keep waiting. And there in James chapter 5, Just flip there. This is one reference I want you to flip to tonight. James chapter 5, verse 13. You know, James is very direct and to the point uh, in his book. Um, And and here's just one of his direct uh, sections. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Are you suffering here tonight? pray. You know, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Who's cheerful? All right, I want to hear a song right now, Nicholas. Let's hear, let's hear something. All right. Whoa. Thanks, Nicholas's grandpa. <laughs> um, you know, is, uh, uh, is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, not to a priest, but to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. You know, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And you can just underline that. And I know that we went over this a little bit in, in Luke 18 a couple weeks ago. And so if you're already like, I heard this a couple weeks ago, it's old news. Then, hey, you know what? Repetition is the key to knowledge. And if the Lord's brought you here tonight, you probably need to learn to be persistent in prayer. You know, it's probably for you that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And the amplified version, some of you remember it from a couple weeks ago, the amplified version says, the earnest, 
heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. A persistent prayer warrior that's fervent, crying out to the Lord. There's dynamic power, explosive power, tremendous power. If there's a heartfelt, continued prayer, the New Living Translation puts it, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. And how quick we are to just go look in the sea, see if there's a cloud. Nope. You know, really, we're like that. I'm like that. It's just, you know, there's a lesson there for me tonight. You know, gosh, how about you wait on the Lord a little bit, Rory? How about you wait on me? How about you just see what my heart is? How about you ask again? And then it goes on there in James. Elijah, so neat to be referred back to the passage that we're in tonight. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, like mine. That is very encouraging to me. I'm a man of fear. You know, I'm a man that sins. I'm a man that doubts. I'm a man that gets scared. You know, to confront the 450 prophets would be a huge, huge feat that I couldn't do. I'm just, you know, to me, it's like, Elijah's not a man like me. I've seen what he's done. But the Lord is saying, yeah, but the Holy Spirit gives you power. It's not about you anyways, Rory. You're just like Elijah. But I want to pour my spirit out upon you, and I want you to do great things just like all the Old Testament heroes did or all the heroes of the book of Acts. I want to use you in the same way. But Rory, I want you to be a fervent prayer warrior. I want you to be persistent and I want you to continue. And I'm so thankful as a young pastor, as a guy that really doesn't know anything, I'm so thankful that this is a praying church. I'm so thankful that this church has opportunities for you to be persistent in prayer. You can be persistent in prayer through the prayer chain. If you're not getting the, the emails to your email account on all the prayer, and, and there it's regular. I mean, you know, I get probably three prayer requests a day from Corvallis, and I get, you know, probably almost two a day or, or one a day from, from Prineville, and that's that's a good ratio. <laughs> People are crying out for prayer in our body. And so I encourage you to get signed up for that and to commit to praying for the people in this body. You can be persistent in prayer at the Pulse on Thursday night. And we did a big study about two months ago on the Pulse of Prayer through the book of Acts. Thump, 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 thump. How the early church was a praying church. And many of our hearts were stirred here in this body to be at the Pulse on Thursday night. And I know... I have a nature just like yours, that after one week or two weeks or three weeks, all of a sudden the pulse is not the priority to be at anymore. 
And where at one time we were, yeah, God stirred me to be a prayer warrior for this body. I just, you know, I just can't, I just can't make that time on Thursday nights. And for some of you, it's a legitimate reason you can't make it. I'm not trying to condemn or manipulate you. There's nothing like that. But if you're able to come and you're choosing other things that you know in your heart, the Lord's saying, I want you there, then come be persistent. You know, as long as there's a church here in Prineville, Calvary Chapel, Crook County, there will be a weekly prayer meeting at this church. That is the conviction of my heart that God has put on me since I was 18 years old. You know, and when I was fasting and praying about where I was supposed to go back in February, in my journal, I could read it to you. God established the work wherever you call me through a prayer meeting. And he's, you know, he's done it and he's doing it. And he's continuing to grow this body in the church. You know, first Corinthians talks about, um, or actually it's second Corinthians chapters seven, eight, and nine talk about how Paul was taking an offering for the, Ju- the Judeans who were going through a famine. And he was going throughout all the lands and he was encouraging the people to give, to give money to Judea. You know, they, they're like, it's our heritage. The, the Jews, we get our faith through the Jews. And so let's take an offering for all of the, the people that are starving down in Jerusalem. They're, they're our forefathers. And it says that the Corinthian church was so excited and fired up at first to take an offering. And they're like, we're going to give the biggest offering out of anybody, you know? And then Paul's like, great, I'll see you on the way back through. And he goes through and he goes to Macedonia and to the Philippian church. And the Philippian church gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. They were freely willing. And then he finds out that the Corinthians haven't even been trying at all to start getting that offering together. And he writes them there in 2 Corinthians and he says, hey, you guys. I don't want you to be embarrassed when I come through to get your offering and you hand me three pennies. It's time to, you know, where at one time there was a passion in you to, um, to take that offering. Now there needs to be the completion of that passion. Or else you, you're going to be embarrassed when I come through. In the same way, maybe it's just a, a, a charge to us as a body. Where at one point, you know, and... and we're just people, you know, it's, it's no condemnation. But at one point there was, woo, the pulse, you know, I want to be part of that thump, 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 continual, fervent prayer. I'm going to do it. You know, three weeks later, I'm not there. The office is on Thursday night. The fall season came through, you know, I have to watch that instead, you know. And you know, guys, there was once a passion, complete that passion. God's calling us to be fervent prayer warriors. And there's a cost to it. There's a cost to it. And, um, but man, it's, it's so worth it to make it. So, you know, I just, I pray the Lord stirs your heart. If you can't make it, no condemnation. If you can't make it every week, no condemnation. But just, man, join us when you can, will you? Join us when you can. And um, so, you know, praise the Lord that there's the opportunities here to be persistent prayer warriors. And, um, and so, uh, Seven times, verse 43, there's nothing until the seventh time, verse 44, that it came to pass the seventh time that he said, there is a cloud. And let's just go back to that picture just, uh, there, Dakota. There's a cloud, and uh, it's as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. 
So he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. So can you picture a, a little tiny, tiny little cloud coming up, isn't it a cute little cloud, you know, coming up out of the, um, of the Mediterranean there. And, uh, and so he says, boy, storms are coming. Hurry up. You know, he says to Ahab, you know, he's thinking, wow, Ahab's going to totally repent after what happened at Mount Carmel. Hurry up and get back to Jezreel because there's a flood coming. It's going to be like a flash flood. You better hurry. And so verse 45, now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Jezreel is about 20 miles away. And, uh, and then the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So to gird up means to, to get your robe and to kind of tuck it in your belt so you got some track shorts on so you can get ready to run. And then he ran and he raced 20 miles and he beat, you know, this track star Elijah beat Ahab's fast chariot. You know, the spirit of the Lord came upon him, just like he came upon Philip in the book of Acts, you know. And Ethiopian got baptized, Ethiopian eunuch got baptized, looked up, the spirit of the Lord just took, took Philip away. And uh, that's exactly what happened with Elijah. And, uh, and so, man, Elijah is like stoked, totally encouraged. You know, wow, there's a revival happening in Israel and Ahab and Jezebel are just totally going to get saved and it's going to be the best. It's going to be a a revival, you know, and um, we're going to see that that just wasn't the case. And Ahab told Jezebel, chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So Elijah, a man with a nature just like ours, so excited that revival might be happening, gets back to Jezreel, finds out that Jezebel, who was always kind of wearing the pants in the relationship with Ahab, she was the spiritual leader, said, "Uh uh-uh, I don't care, you know, I don't care about that fire coming down from heaven. She was just so hard-hearted and so wicked that she, you know, she told Elijah, there's a price on your head, and if I don't die, you know, it's either I'm going to die or you're going to die, and later on, I don't want to be a spoiler, but you can guess who's going to die, and it's a nice death. I mean, it's like, it's interesting, but we'll get there in a couple weeks. But Elijah, nature just like ours, he, he, we see fear come upon him. And instead of standing in boldness there in Jezreel like he did on Mount Carmel and saying, heck no, fire fall down, boom, see you Jezebel. You know, no, he, his heart trembles and he begins to flee. And he went down to Beersheba. Beersheba is the southernmost part of Israel. So he went from the northernmost part uh, bordering Phoenicia and he came all the way down, down through Judah, clear down to Beersheba, way down in the south, as south as you can get there in Israel. And he left his servant there. And uh, so in verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down 
under a broom tree or a juniper tree. And he prayed that he might die. He said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. You know, Elijah has had a big day. You know, can you imagine? Hey, hey Elijah, you know, what'd you do today? Well, I called out the idolatry of an entire nation. That would be big enough for me, you know. I challenged a cult to prove that their God was really God. That would also be a big day in and of itself for me. I called down fire from heaven from my God, and it came, completely consumed my altar. I slaughtered 450 false prophets. I've never done that. Uh, With a machine gun, it would probably be a difficult task, let alone with a sword. You know, so physically, he's exhausted. I fasted and prayed that it would rain, and it rained. I put on my running shorts, and I raced King Ahab's chariots 20 miles back to Jezreel, and I beat him. You know, and so, and then if you were to add, and I just traveled the whole length of the nation of Israel. Whether or not that was on the exact same day, I'm not sure. But a big, a big day, you know, a big a uh, couple days at least for Elijah. And he's just, he's, he's done. He's at the end of himself. He's exhausted physically. He's terrified that he's going to be slaughtered. And he just says, it's enough. Take my life, Lord. I'm no better than my father's. I'm ready to die, is what he's saying. He's at the end of himself and he's suicidal. Have you ever been there? Are you there now? You know, with this economy, I remember my grandpa telling me he was from Nebraska and his family, they were corn farmers. And I remember him telling me about the depression and how during the depression, uh, the neighboring farmers would hang themselves in the barns because life was so hopeless with the depression and the economy. You know, are, are you at that point? You know, life is hopeless right now. You're just ready to die. You know, it would just be better if I were dead. And how encouraging to know that the valiant men of God often felt like that. Moses felt like that, went through a similar period that Elijah did as he was leading the children of Israel to the promised land. In Numbers 11, verse 13, you know, the people were crying out for meat. They coveted meat. They lusted after meat. They wanted meat. They were hungry for meat. And Moses says, where can I get meat from all these people? They just keep chanting, give us meat, give us meat. I cannot carry all of these people by myself, he says. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, he says to God, put me to death right now. If I found any favor in your eyes and don't let my life continue, I'm tired of it. Kill me now, God, is what he says. Very similar place that Elijah was in. Paul struggled with it too. In 2 Corinthians, you read about the shipwreckings and the beatings and the scourgings and the homelessness and the trials of Paul. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about the sufferings that I've gone to because I've, you know, I was burdened beyond measure above strength so that I despaired even of life. Paul, at more than one point, was at the end of himself. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, he says, you know what, I'm just, I'm ready to, I struggle. I'm ready to just die and depart and be with the Lord. But I have a challenge within me because it's, it's probably 
you know, it's a better thing for me to stay here on the earth and to be with you guys and to keep equipping you. But I just, I want to die and I just want to go to heaven. And Elijah struggled with that and Moses struggled with that. Take my life, I'm no better than my father's. And then as he lay and slept, verse 5, under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals. Does it make you hungry? And a, would you, that's like angel food cake or something? I just make this stuff up as I go along. I know you're like, wow, you must write that ahead of time. That's incredible. No, angel food cake. Yeah, write that in the margin of your Bible. <clears throat> a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. So again, the Lord's the provider for Elijah. Remember chapter 17, the Lord took him to the brook Cherith, and he was fed by ravens. They brought him bread and meat, just incredible provision. And he had water there. And then, you know, the Lord is our provider. <clears throat> and, um, and we see that uh, this, this angel here, uh, we see that he's called, verse 7, the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. It's always exciting for me to read about the angel of the Lord. This this Old Testament appearance of the Son of God. He appeared to Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. Listen, listen to what she says about meeting with the angel of the Lord. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So he, she, she calls him the Lord, Yahweh. She called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are the God who sees, for she said, I have also here seen him who sees me. The angel of the Lord she recognized was God. The God who sees. To Abraham, chapter 22, when Abraham was about to, of Genesis, when he was about to slaughter his son Isaac, the angel of the Lord appeared from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Lord. And he said, don't lay your hand on the lad or do anything uh, to him, for now I know that you fear God since you've withheld your son, your only son, from me, the angel of the Lord says. You've not withheld your only son from me. It, it was the Lord who had, uh, who the sacrifice was going to have been to. Jacob uh, wrestled with the angel of the Lord in Genesis 32. And, uh, and he says, um, you know, later on, you know, again, I've seen God face to face after he wrestled with the angel. Moses in the burning bush uh, recognized that it was God. The Israelites and Balaam and Joshua saw the angel of the Lord before he was going to take Jericho. And, and again, the Israelites in Judges chapter 2 and Gideon saw the angel of the Lord and knew that it was God. You read these passages and they know that it's God. This angel of the Lord, the messenger. Now, is Jesus an angel like Michael the archangel? Is he the brother of Lucifer like the Mormons? No, no, no. He's the messenger of God in the Old Testament. David in 1 Chronicles 21, and and we studied it in 2 Samuel, the angel of the Lord. Uh, You read about him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they're thrown into the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace and he says, Hey guys, how many people did we throw into the fire? Three, my Lord, number three, you know. Sorry, that's from Shrek. I have a two and a half year old. Um, 
And, uh, you know, he says, yeah, I know that we threw three in there, but I see four. And the fourth one looks like the Son of God. It's Jesus. He appeared. He's, he's the Alpha and the Omega, Revelation tells us. He's the beginning and the end. You know, a name that Jesus calls himself is I Am. And everybody knew when he said that, that he was saying, I am God. And so this, you know, Jesus appears to Elijah and comforts him and provides for him and encourages him. And the angel of the Lord, verse 7, came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. So for 40 days and 40 nights, there, there was a fasting type period, similar, obviously, to the one that Jesus uh, endured. And he went all the way down to Mount Horeb, which is also known as in the Bible, Mount Sinai, or the mountain of God. And so Elijah runs from Jezebel all the way down, keeps running, went to the Beersheba, the southern point of Israel, goes even farther than that, clear down to where Moses met with the Lord on the mountain of God and received the tablets and the law. In verse 9, and there he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place. What a camping trip, huh? That'd be an interesting night to spend at at the mountain of God. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Are you running from the Lord tonight? That's what Elijah was doing. He was running from the call of God upon his life for good reasons. (laughs) The guy was going to be slaughtered by Jezebel. But man, the call is there for us as well tonight. What are you doing here? How did you get to this place? So far away from where I'm using you, or was using you. Are you trapped in that sin, and it's taken you farther than you ever thought you'd go, and the Lord's saying tonight, how'd you get here? What are you doing here? You know, or are you in a place like Elijah, where you're at the bottom of the bottom? You know, you're about to put the gun to your head. And Jesus is just saying, how'd you get here? This isn't where I have you. Man, I want to call you to, uh, to joy. Inexpressible. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. That's what Romans tells us. How did you get here? What are you doing here? Elijah. In verse 10, so he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God. He's feeling sorry for himself. There's a pity party going on here. I've, I've been so zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Now, Elijah was feeling sorry for himself, but his perspective was wrong. His perspective was wrong. He had just met with Obadiah a couple days before, and Obadiah feared the Lord from his youth, you remember, in chapter 18. Actually, chapter 17. Obadiah feared the Lord from his youth, feared God, loved God so much that he was 
hiding a hundred prophets in two different caves, and he was expelling energy to provide for them. Elijah wasn't the only one. There were a hundred more that he knew of, plus Obadiah. So 101, not Dalmatians, but prophets, you know. Again, watched the movie today. I heard it in the background. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just hearing the 101 Dalmatians, you know, he's, he should be hearing the 101 prophets out there that are, that are, you know, living wholeheartedly for the Lord, even in the cave. They haven't bowed the knee, we're going to read later. They haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And so as he was having this pity party, he was feeling sorry for himself, but his perspective was wrong. And just flip over to Psalm 73, just verse 16. And Psalm 73, the psalmist was getting so frustrated because every wicked man that he knew was practicing wickedness and yet was prospering here on earth. Boy, that really gets your goat, doesn't it? You know, and the the psalmist just got frustrated because, man, I look out there and all these guys, they're partying and they're sinning and they're committing adultery and look at them. They've got all these pleasures. They've got all this fun. They've got all the stuff and the material possessions. And here I am. I've given everything to follow Jesus and and I'm poor. I'm the son of, I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. And I'm, ah, and there's just frustration there. Maybe you've experienced that. How's that guy prospering? I just, ah, oh, frustrated, you know. And this guy is just, in Psalm 73, he just revels in this bitter attitude. And then in verse 16, and when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. I just can't think about it anymore. Oh, I'm just getting so mad that these ungodly are prospering. In verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Man, what is your situation? You know, if you're outside of the sanctuary of God, you're going to get the wrong perspective on your situation. You're going to have your emotions and what you see from the outside. But when you come and you spend time with the Lord, he gives you the right perspective. See, he knows people's end and he knows what you don't see. And he speaks that to your heart. What perspective we get when we're in the sanctuary of the Lord. And Elijah had forgotten about Obadiah. And he'd forgotten about those hundred prophets. In verse 11 Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong. Now, does this remind you guys of anything? Mount Sinai, Elijah's in the cleft of a rock, and the Lord's going to pass by before him. Who, Who does that remind you of? Moses in Exodus, I think it's chapter 30. Moses in a similar state that Elijah was in desperately needed perspective, desperately needed the right heart. And he just pled with God. And, you know, the scriptures say that Moses and God, they spoke face to face like one speaks to his best friend. That's the type of relationship they had. But, but Moses never actually got to see God's face. And he says, Lord, let me see you. And the, and the Lord said, if you see me, you'll die right here and now. That's how, that's how my glory is. That's how glorious I am. You die. You can't handle it. 
But here, hide in the cleft of the rock, put your hand over your face, and I'll pass by. And when I pass by, you can see my backside. And so he goes by, and he gets to see, and his face shined from just seeing that little bit of the Lord. And here, Elijah, and the same could be the same cave for all we know. It could be the same cleft of the rock. And the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. You know, so often hearing the Lord doesn't sound like we think it would. I mean, the creator, for goodness sakes, could you give me a lightning bolt or something? You know, could you fall a tree in front of me? Something like that. I need to see something. And, and so often it's just not how we think it, it's going to be. And sometimes it takes time of fasting and waiting on the Lord and crying out to him. You know, and sometimes he does speak in the fire. Sometimes he does speak in the earthquake. Sometimes he does speak in the wind that's so crazy that it breaks rocks in half. I've never quite seen a wind like that, but Wyoming had some very close winds like that, man. Holy smokes, wind country. But Elijah heard this still, small, delicate, whispering voice speaking. You know, in Luke chapter 21, we're going to be there in a couple of weeks on Sunday mornings, but we see that there's devastation in the tribulation that will involve the sea and the stars and the waves and all of those things. And that Matthew 24 tells us that, you know, the, the earth is going to start having more severe natural disasters. And it's the beginning of judgment, Matthew 24 says. It's the beginning of birth pangs. And we're going to study all of that. It's a very wonderful study in a couple of weeks. But just as a woman goes into labor and it's the sign that the labor is coming, all those little contractions and birth pangs, so is the earth getting worse and worse as far as natural disasters go. And it's just a sign to us. You know, the Lord rebuked the Pharisees that, you know, they knew how to go sailing at night, you know, you know and to read the signs, read it. How to go red at night, sailors delight, red in the war- morning, sailors take warning. You know, you know how to read the sky and to know if it's going to be a good sailing day, but you're not listening to the scriptures and listening to the signs of the word of God to know when my day is coming. And they missed his day. They rejected him. He says, don't let it happen again. Here's the signs that are going to precede the second coming. And for us, I believe even going to precede the rapture of the church. And there's some interesting studies as you see, you know, you study Hurricane Katrina and just how the week that Hurricane Katrina hit uh, uh, Louisiana, that it was supposed to be a a week of southern, it was called, not southern debauchery, but pretty much it was southern, I can't remember, but basically it was like a festival worse than Mardi Gras that the homosexuals were putting on And, and orgies in the street and things like that and horrific stuff that we were just going to let happen in our country. And I believe that the Lord said, Mm-mm. I'm going to use the wind and I'm going to use the waves to put a stop to this. How could you say that? That the Lord would do something like, 
have you read the Bible at all? <laughs> have you read it? Now, praise the Lord, there are some holy people there in, in Louisiana, and they've, they've been able to minister down there and to lead many to Christ. But the Lord uses the wind and the waves and nature to speak. We need to have ears to hear, but we also need to have ears to hear the still, small voice. And in a day and age where you've got an iPod in your ears 24-7, you've got, you know, you wake up, you, your clock radio goes off, you're listening to the radio, you take your shower, you get out, you turn the, the news on, you go to, to school or to work, you got your radio on, you listen all day to somebody else, you get out, you watch TV after school, you go watch night TV, you know, the radio's on, blah, 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 you listen to me, blah, 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 you know, and you go to bed. And the Lord's like, when am I supposed to even talk to you? When are you supposed to hear my still small voice and how good it is to get away? I love mountain biking. And back when I had horses, I loved riding my horses to the top of the mountains and just spending time up there, listening to the Lord, reading his word and just saying, Lord, here I am. I've got ears to hear. Speak to me. We need to cultivate that again in our lives, listening for that still small voice. Verse 13, and so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave and suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? That same thing, you know, why have you come, uh, you know, this far again? Uh, Or, you know, now what are you doing? What's going on in your heart? This is a, a very gracious opening line from the Lord. The Lord cares about what's going on in our heart. And, and he says, uh, again, it's just almost word for word what he said back there in verse 10. I've been a very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. And then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. That's clear back north again. That's clear back up by Mount Carmel. It's the northern of the northern, up by Phoenicia. Go back up there, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And so... um, It shall be uh, whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha um, will kill. And so we see um, Elijah has a call on his life to get back into ministry. You know, to strengthen himself in the Lord. And David and Jonathan had that type of relationship where they strengthen one another in the Lord. And here the Lord strengthens Elijah in the Lord. He says, go and anoint Hazael. In in 2 Kings chapter 8, we'll read about Elisha um, getting to actually put the crown, basically, on Hazael's head. That's when he becomes king. We have Jehu, who's the future king of Israel. And uh, Hosea is going to be the prophet who pronounces judgment on Jehu for all of his excessive violence. And then we have Elisha, the prophet, who we're going to read in this chapter, who's going to be anointed as Um, Elijah's successor. In verse 18, yet, here here we have perspective given, yet I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
Though there was more than 101 prophets, there were 7,000 reserved. And isn't that just how it happens in the sanctuary of the Lord? You go in thinking it's just you and really, you know, you know in your heart that at least there's 100. And then the Lord says, there's more. You don't even know. There's so many that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. In the same manner that there will be those in the tribulation period that won't bow their knee to, to the Antichrist. But they'll be faithful to the end. And what an encouraging thing. I'm sure that was for Elijah to hear. He's not the last man on earth. In Romans chapter 11, Paul says, is God done with Israel? No, he's not done with Israel. In fact, just like God reserved 7,000 in the day of Elijah, even now in the time of Paul, there was a remnant reserved in Israel who were following Jesus, Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And to this day, there's a remnant in Israel. There are Messianic Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. God's not done with Israel. In fact, Romans chapter 11 tells us one day all Israel will be saved. What good perspective Paul had. So so we've just read of this period in Elijah's life of extreme depression, fear, and self-pity, discouragement. We read about, you know, we talked about what a long day he had, you know. And notice how depression came to him. You might just write these things down if you're a note taker. Depression came to Elijah after intense ministry output. When you're being spent for the Lord and and he does something incredible, so often depression comes after that and discouragement comes after that. And we see that in Elijah's life. So often, again, depression comes after a relational conflict. You know, he just had a a big conflict in relation with um, the prophets of Baal and King Ahab. Um, You know, depression came after physical exhaustion. We just read all about how exhausted, how sleepy, just find a tree, try and get some sleep. He was. How exhausting it was to kill 450 people and to travel all across the country on foot. Depression came for Elijah after a major victory. And so often it's, you know, I I wasn't much of an athlete, but I've heard that for athletes, you know, after winning the, the big trophy, the Super Bowl or the state championship, or, you know, they won state and graduated from high school, and, you know, that depression comes upon them after having excelled so well and been so victorious, or after graduates receive the diploma, they go through times of depression, or after women have babies and and get that trophy in their hands, they go through postpartum depression. After victory, we go through depression so often. And Alexander the Great, it's been told that after he conquered all the nations of the then known world, he sat there, out in the rain, weeping because he'd conquered the whole world and there was nothing more to conquer at 30 years old. I got a whole life ahead of me. Now what am I supposed to do? And he drank himself. Uh, He drank and became drunk out there in the rain that day as he wept and he caught pneumonia and he died at 30 or 32 years old. Depression comes after great victory. Uh, I'm always encouraged hearing about Charles Spurgeon. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he's called, there in England, London, England, in the late 1800s, 
uh, he battled depression daily. You know, some people would say it was because he had gout so bad that that was part of that. But daily battled depression. You read his sermons and you, you hear it. And there's a, 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 a sermon of his or a teaching that he spoke to his preacher's college or his pastor's college. And it's called The Minister's Fainting Fits. And it takes an hour to read through it. And it's just Spurgeon talking about how pastors and ministers constantly battle depression from the enemy and and from the Lord. Times of of buffeting, times of being chastened. And and I remember in um, school of ministry that Rob, my pastor, would come and just read that to us. And he, you know, he always struggles with depression big time. And there's times that I do, but not, not as bad as he has and not as bad as Spurgeon, at least now in my life. But um, it's just encouraging to read these amazing men of God having been in places like Elijah. Sometimes and often these times of depression and discouragement come after the times of victory. Why would that happen, do you think? <clears throat> One reason I would think would be to keep us humble. I mean, could you imagine if Elijah came back and he was like, I'm the man, I'm the man, watch out, fire's going to get you, fire's going to get you, you know, and he was just like, I just ran 20 miles with my track shorts on, you know, and I'd be a chariot, you know, and he could have gotten prideful. But the Lord allowed him to go through this season of depression so that he was constantly reliant on the Lord and he had the right perspective of who he was and who God was. Uh, this depression also came after a time of huge disappointment. He thought that Ahab and Jezebel were going to repent and the whole nation was going to repent. Here we see that that wasn't the case. And so he was just discouraged after that. And so it's here in this chapter that we, we can read how to get depressed. We all know how to, you know, there's all those studies on how to not get, or how to get undepressed. Here's how to get depressed in four easy steps. We can study this from Elijah's life. Number one, find a place to go by yourself. When you isolate yourself, you're setting yourself up for depression. You know, the Proverbs tell us that. You know, that he who isolates himself uh, is setting himself up for destruction. And he, he despises wise counsel, Proverbs tells us. And, uh, you know, so, you know, don't find a place to go. You know, why would, why would Elijah go to the wilderness? You know, he went clear down to Beersheba with his servant, and then he got rid of his servant, and he went clear down to Mount Sinai. You know, probably because people say things and do things. I just don't want to hear it from them right now. But really, people, we need people around us to pray for us. And to lift our arms up in the battle like Aaron and Hur did for Moses. And the battle was won as our arms were lifted up. Also, when we're around people, we get a reality check in our depression. People speak those, those words that are like iron, sharpening iron. Getting off our rough edges. You know, sometimes it's, a, it's as simple as, dude, you need to get over yourself. You need to get back and serve the Lord. You've been, you've been in this state for too long. You know, uh, do you have less personal friends than you had a year ago? Or have you isolated yourself? Does it make you angry when the phone rings and it's for you? <laughs> or if it's not for you? You know, I just don't want to talk to anybody right now. 
Are you spending less evenings out and in fellowship and, and you're coming home now and just retreating immediately to the basement or to, to the den to spend time by yourself, even away from your family? Are you skipping small groups, the 242 groups? You're avoiding people. And if you're here to Wednesday night, that's probably not you. But, you know, after the church is over, you're the first one out of the congregation because you just don't want people looking you in the eye, cornering you and, and asking you how you're really doing. We need that as people. And if you isolate yourself, you're asking for trouble. And you're asking for, for uh, depression to come on you. And you're asking for discouragement. So go and find a place by yourself. That's going to be discouraging. Now, I'm not talking about just times of waiting on the Lord. We do need that. But long periods of isolation sets you up for destruction. Another way to get depressed is to focus on the negative. And that's what Elijah was doing. He was focusing on the negative. He was having a pity party. That's all you hear from him. I'm no better than my fathers. I'm not excelling. I'm, I'm a failure is what he's saying. You know, or I'm the last one in Israel. And that's how depression works. You, you start out just focusing on the negative and it just explodes until you're just consumed with the negatives. Another way to get depressed really quick is is by forgetting God's provision in the past. There's an old saying, it might be by Oswald Chambers or Oswald Sanders. I don't know why there's two guys named Oswald out there. But uh, the, the saying is, God's past faithfulness demands our present trust. And Elijah, you know, in the wilderness, being fed by the ravens, being fed by, you know, by the, the jar of oil at the widow's house that never ran dry, you know, and and, you know, how the Lord had provided, how the Lord had been faithful to, to send that fire there on Mount Carmel, to not let Elijah down, to not let Elijah look like a fool. But he got his eyes off of God's past faithfulness. Another way that we can get depressed so quick is by not taking care of ourselves physically. You know, if you're not eating healthy, if you're not exercising or working out, if you're not getting enough sleep, you know, you're setting yourself up for physically, practically, your body, you know, needs, needs those things. And you're just asking for depression and, and discouragement. You know, we see that in our children when they don't get enough sleep and they don't get enough nutritious food. You know, you're having a great time. All of a sudden your kid's rolling around on the ground throwing a massive fit, you know, because his sister got a bigger cookie than him or something like that, you know? Like, how did this meltdown happen? You know, we were on our way to church last week, and Russell's been pretending. It's like a new stage, you know, pretending. So he'll bring us milk, milky, you know, drink the milky, you know? And so you're like, ooh, yummy, you know? And, uh, you know, he just loves and his, his imaginary friend is actually his real friend from Corvallis, Eli. But Eli is his imaginary friend in Prineville now. Eli, no, no, you know, and Eli, sit on the stairs. And Eli, I'm like, where's Eli? He's in my hand, you know, or he's in my mouth. And uh, so we're getting in the car last Wednesday night, putting Russell in, the, in his car seat. And he's like, my cup, is, or my cup is on the door. Give me my cup. And I'm like, look, and I'm like, there's no cup on the door. He's like, my cup is on the door. My cup is on the door. And I'm like, oh, oh, you know, and I'm, here you go. No, my cup is on the door. I'm like, oh, over here? No, no. And, he's, and I'm like, and I'm like, okay, let me get it for you. You know, and I was like, whoa, dude, you're way too serious about pretending. You know, it's like the kid hadn't gotten enough sleep. 
you know, we need to have those things in, in, in just a practical way. <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, my mom always said that the monsters are always bigger at night, you know, and how you lay awake all night just thinking about how you're going to solve that problem and you just can't sleep. And it's like, man, just, you know, stop thinking about it. Give it to the Lord and try to get sleep because when you wake up in the morning, you're going to re- be refreshed and you're going to be able to think uh, just a whole lot more clearly. And so just again, looking at Elijah's life and just this time of depression, some ways to cure depression from just looking at Elijah here is let, number one, let God confront you. Allow the Lord to meet with you. And you're not, if you're not in fellowship or you're, you know, if you're isolating yourself, you're not, the Lord's just, it's going to be difficult. If you're not in the word, if you're got your iPod in all the time and you're just listening to other stuff, you need, let the Lord confront you. Let God reveal himself to you like he did with Elijah. Ask the Lord, Lord, I need to see you. You need to receive uh, God's provision and you need to remember God's provision and you need to be thankful for God's provision. You know, instead of worrying Thank the Lord for his past provision. That will remind you of that he's faithful in the past. He's going to be faithful now to provide. In verse 15, we see that the Lord says, get off your rear and get back to serving. Are you, do you struggle with depression? I always counsel people, if they're struggling with depression, to start serving. And you know what? When they do you just see a remarkable change in their countenance and in their heart and in their life and in their joy. You know, I said a couple, you know, it might be kind of silly, but the key to joy is J-O-Y. Jesus, others, and you. And I met with a man yesterday, and he's just discouraged, and he's depressed. And I said, you know what, buddy? You know, I just said, the key to joy is Jesus first, others, and you. You know what it is right now? It's others, you, and Jesus. He's like, yeah, I recognize that. I'm like, man, we need you at Wednesday night. You need to be at Wednesday night. You need to have Jesus back in that first spot. Come to the pulse. Let us pray for you. You know, serve. Keep serving. You know, there's the temptation to get out of service when you're discouraged and depressed. But we need to not draw away. We need to draw near. Serve others. And then verse 18, get back involved with people. There's 7,000 out there that can have fellowship with you. And you're down here at Mount Sinai, a couple hundred miles away. Get back in fellowship. Get back around people. And so we're going to end there tonight. Believe it or not, we're not going to finish another chapter. There's only three verses left, but uh, we've got a lot to talk about in those next three or four verses. So, Stuart, why don't you come on up? You can go ahead and put your stuff aside and we'll just close with worship. Why don't we just go ahead and dim the lights down too? And Lord, we just know that, that this is your word for today. This is your word for us, Lord. And Lord, in a day and age where depression it, it seems to have such a, a bad perspective, and it, it's given titles, bipolar, and, 
and all of that stuff. And, and there just seems to be two, two polar opposites of, you know, just go get the medicine and don't, don't cry out to the Lord. And then the other end is, you know, you don't even need the doctor's help or anything like that. And Lord, we just, we need your perspective, Lord. And we know you use doctors and you use medicine, but but if we're not crying out for joy to number one, come from the throne of God, like a fount of living water, then we're, we're erring. We're like Asa who had the foot disease and looked to all the doctors and, and didn't cry out to you. And he died of his foot disease, Lord. And I just cry out in this place that your joy would flow. Just as people are, they're not isolating themselves, they're here tonight. They're, they're crying out that you'd reveal yourself to them. Lord, we just pray that uh, you would just bring that fruit of the Spirit in this place of joy. And we're just going to give you the opportunity tonight that if you've just been struggling with depression and you find yourself in a place like Elijah, despairing even of life, just to be real tonight and to just, you know, like we read in James, is there anyone among you who's sick? Is there anyone among you who, you know, you just need prayer? Let's be persistent in prayer tonight. We want to pray for you if, you're, if you struggle with depression, if you despair even of life tonight. And we're just going to have you, if that's you tonight, just come forward and come up to the altar and just confess to the Lord your struggle. And, and just as people come up tonight, just we're just going to come up with you and we're going to lay hands on you and we're going to pray for you. That joy would just flow from the throne of God on your life. And maybe tonight you just you've gotten perspective as you're in the sanctuary of God. And you just want to come forward and just Cast your cares on the Lord, Peter tells us, for he cares for you. And man, if you can't be real here in church, man, there's nowhere that you can be real. And we just want this to be a place you can just be vulnerable before the Lord and before us and that we can lift your arms up. There's a very real battle going on over your life. And the Lord told Moses, lift your hands up over the battle and as your arms are up, the battle will be won. And so Moses did that within his own strength for as long as he could, and his hands started shaking, and he, he, you know, his hands started drooping down and dropping down, and the battle began to be lost. And so Aaron and Hur came, and they came over, and they lifted up, they lifted up Moses' hands, and the battle was won. Don't try to win this battle in your own strength tonight. Let us come alongside you. And just as we worship, just, just come on forward and we'll just surround you and pray for you. Lord, we pray for healing tonight. Lord, that those that you want to, that tonight they'd be healed from depression once and for all. Lord, we know it's scriptural to choose the joy of the Lord. And Lord, tonight that we would just, in faith, Choose the joy of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is, is joy. 
righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Lord, bring just that spiritual fruit tonight of joy in our lives. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.